So uh, Reverend Ford was really in a bad mood. He went for a hike. He was having a lot of trouble with the people in his church. Ladies and ladies, missionary society couldn't get along. The deacons were giving him trouble. The offerings were low. He was in a really bad, bad mood. He slumped to the ground. A little girl came along and she said, What happened to you, Reverend Ford? Did you break your leg? He said, No. No, he said, Things are just kind of hard at the church. The little girl whose name was Pollyanna asked Reverend Ford, she said, are you glad to be a minister? And he said, well, some days I am. She said, my dad was a minister, and he said that it helped him a lot on the days he didn't want to be a minister to remember that there are 800 rejoicing texts in the Bible. He was getting ready to preach on Matthew chapter 23. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he was in a surly mood. But then when he heard from Pollyanna, the whole church changed around when he chose one of the happy texts of the Bible. Today, we are not in one of the happy texts of the Bible. We're in one of the texts of the Bible that is one of the most famous one of the most mysterious, and frankly, it tells us something about the wrath of God. We are going to talk today about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and the text is Revelation and chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I heard from a pastor, a joyful pastor who's gone to be with the Lord. I heard him once tell a story about how he made sure that he, just, that he didn't only pick and cherry-pick the easy, happy text of the Bible. He said that he discovered that the best way to do that was through pe preaching through books of the Bible so that you give an, uh, the topics the, the same weight that the Bible gave them. He said for the first few years of his ministry, all he did was preach topical messages. He had two years' worth of topical messages. So he would talk to his district superintendent toward the end of two years and say, I'm going to need to be reassigned to another church. And they would say, why? He said, because I'm out of messages. I only have two years worth of messages. So he made his way up the coast of California, going from church to church every two years, preaching his two years worth of messages until he got to Laguna Beach, California. His name was Chuck Smith. He's a famous pastor. When he got to Laguna Beach, California, he said, I didn't want to leave. It was so beautiful. It was the best surf on the coast. And the tax base was really low because there was all kinds of industry. My wife and I decided that somehow... I was going to have to come up with more than two years worth of messages if I wanted to stay in Laguna Beach. So what he decided to do is he found a book on 1 John and had a bunch of outlines through 1 John. He noticed there were like 42 outlines through 1 John. It occurred to him that if he would preach a message based on one of those outlines every week, allowing for Christmas and vacation and such, he could stay in Laguna Beach for another year. What he discovered is that while he was preaching through a book of the Bible, his life was transformed, his preaching was transformed, and his church was transformed. Something happens when you take the text as they come, when you preach on the things that God has arranged in his book. Now, you might be tempted if you're preaching through the book of Revelation to skip 
chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 1 of Revelation was a scene of the, of the vision of the risen Christ that John saw when he was working the rock pile in Patmos. Chapter 2 and 3 are really good preaching. They're letters to the churches full of all kinds of, of interesting and applicable things. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are powerful scenes of the throne room of God, the creator on the throne, and then the lamb that was slain, taking the scroll from from God, and then the elders and the four living creatures and all the angels and inhabitants of heaven falling down and worshiping the one on the throne and the lamb who was slain. But when you get to Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you have a long track of very difficult, painful episodes that spill out on the earth. As the seals are broken, most of us believe what happens in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is 14 chapters of the tribulation period. Who in his right mind would ever say to his church, we're going to preach 14 messages in a row on the tribulation? Well, somebody that believed that the scriptures are sufficient. Somebody who believed that God put what he put in the Bible for good reason. Somebody who believed in the sufficiency and in the authority of the Bible. And that's what we're going to do. We'll have a little break for, for, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, but we're going to go right through the book of Revelation. We're going to touch on every verse, every chapter, a chapter a week except this week. I cheated. I'm going to go a half a chapter this week, and Lord willing, a half of a chapter next week. Let's read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 17. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he that's the slain lamb, opened the third seal. I heard a third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. And he opened a fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And he opened the sixth seal. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll 
that was being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, or you could say the presidents and the senators, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? If you were to compare Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, you would see this is a period of time that Jesus called the tribulation. The book of Matthew is arranged around five discourses of Jesus, five speeches, if you will, of Jesus. And in between the discourses of Jesus in Matthew are actions and uh, miracles that's that amplify what he taught. One of the most fascinating of Jesus' discourses in Matthew is the one that's recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, and it is called, we call it the Olivet Discourse. If you were to divide the Olivet Discourse in three sections, you would probably call it the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. If you take the section that we're talking about here in Revelation, you can see that it has the same divisions. The first three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation or the beginning are described in Revelation chapters 6 through 9. The middle is in Revelation chapters 10 through 14, where the Antichrist breaks a promise and, and persecutes Israel. And the end of the tribulation is recorded in Matthew, or excuse me, in Revelation 15 through 19. Jesus called it the tribulation. There's no mention of the church in chapters 6 through 19. And so there are those who believe the church has been raptured at this point. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. In other words, a time for Israel. So many believe the church is caught away and God's dealing primarily with Israel. He certainly is dealing primarily with Israel in this passage. The timing of the rapture, what the, the scripture is teaching about Jesus isn't dependent on what you believe about the timing of the rapture. According to Daniel chapter 9, and verse 27, there's a seven-year period of time where God is dealing specifically with Israel. And this is true in Revelation in chapters 6 through 19. So God's prophetic calendar for the future begins with the signing of, a, of an agreement by a world dictator, the Antichrist, and ends with Christ's return to the earth to judge evil and to establish his kingdom. Luke also talks about this time. And Luke calls it in Luke 21, 22, the day of vengeance of our God. The Bible speaks about this in a number of places. If you want to understand the images in Revelation, which is a great temptation to spend most of your time decoding the images, that would be a mistake because the overall message of Revelation is plain whether you decode all the little details right now or not. But if you want to decode details, sometimes they're decoded in the immediate context. This symbol means that. Other times they're in the broader context of the book. Somewhere else in the book they're described. But if you don't find them in Revelation, a decoding of the signs, if you will, the place you'd want to look is in the Old Testament because the, the, the book of Revelation assumes an understanding of the Old Testament. And if you wanted to be specific about where you look in the Old Testament, you'd want to understand the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel and the book of Zechariah because they're direct uh, references there to symbols that are the same and times that are the same. It would be tempting to set aside books that are harder to understand or that are symbol-laden or that are apocalyptic like this, but it's God's Word. And so I would, I would rather 
I would rather study something, understand the way different godly people have under, seen it, know those various views so that when the things happen, I know which one is right, than just kind of stumble around in, in ignorance and in confusion. Maybe you heard a story about a pastor who went to visit a farmer whose wife went to church, but he never went to church. And the pastor went to him and he said, I need to come out here and I needed to ask you a question. And the farmer said, sure, pastor, what do you need to know? And he said, are you a Christian? He goes, no, the Christian family, they live two, door, two farms down. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm asking if you're lost. He goes, no, no, this is my farm. This is where I live. I'm not lost. He goes, no, you don't understand. Are you ready for the judgment day? He said, when is the judgment day? The, the pastor said, nobody knows. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. Farmer said, well, pastor, when you get that figured out, why don't you let me know? Because my wife's going to probably want to go both days. The man was just confused. That's what I'm saying. And it's very common for us to take a hold of uh, Daniel or take a hold of Revelation and go, this just confuses me and set it aside. But I would suggest you don't do that because there are promises in Revelation about what happens if you read it and if you hear it and if you keep it. And someone humorously noted once, it doesn't say that it's a promise if you understand it. Of course, I think it does assume that. Listen to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it. So can I suggest this? You read the revelation. And when the Spirit shows you something to obey, you obey that. And I promise you, on, God, on the authority of God's word, you will be blessed. I've been around the horn a few times, and I've noticed that the people of God who are most blessed of God, who, who people who walk with God and who love God, the people who love God's word, every part of it, and they're especially people who love the appearing of Christ and who love the second coming. So there are in this text, what you're going to see in Revelation 6 is the beginning of these seven judgments when the seals are broken. So the seals on the scroll are broken, and when a seal is broken, something happens on the earth. And then there are seven of them. And then there are trumpet judgments. Perhaps out of the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. And when trumpets sound, something happens on the earth. And then you're going to see in Revelation, there are bowl judgments. It's as if when the seventh trumpet sounds, seven bowl judgments then begin to pour out on the earth. And when these bowls are poured out, something happens on the earth. And the something that happens on the earth in these, in these seals and trumpets and bowls is always judgment. So great judgment is coming on the earth. All the judgments are included in the seven seal judgments, if you will. It's probably a trivializing it, but it's like the Russian doll. You keep opening them, and they keep opening out. They're telescopic, not strictly chronological. And you'll even notice today, if you were looking for seven seals in Revelation, there are only six. That's just to see who's serious about studying. Because the seventh is in chapter 8. And chapter, you would think it'd be in chapter 7, but it doesn't follow a strictly chronological order because there's a little sidebar in chapter 7. It goes back and you have the seventh seal in chapter 8. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this reminds me of algebra class. You just lost me. And I will tell you like the algebra teacher told me, and that is, don't worry, we're going to go over this again. And we will. And you should study through the week. And can I just say this? This is a profoundly important thing. You know where we're going next, Lord willing, in our, in our pulpit work here. You know that we're going to the second half of Revelation 6 next week. And so here's what wise, godly people will do. They will study the Word 
this week knowing that they're going to be attending on that passage next week and pepper the text with questions so that when the even a boring message is interesting when you have when the the pastor is answering questions that you've had in your heart all week so all the judgments are included in the seven seal judgments and today we're going to see the first four in revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 and these first four of the seven seal judgments are also called the four we, we've popularly known as the four horsemen or the four horsemen revelation or the four horsemen of the apocalypse they're, and they're given in a vivid and evocative imagery in order to aid our memory and to give us concrete pictures of this and primarily to stimulate our obedience to God. And so we want to lean into these things like people who know and love God. Often we, in our day, it's popular to hear people, even evangelical people, kind of mock the preaching of the second coming. I understand pastors sometimes have been on the edge of irresponsibility with their speculation and with their sensationalism, with their date setting, and none of that is really appropriate. But to set aside a love for the second coming would be grand folly. And so people who know God, love God, and who want to have the gifts of God and the favor of God should love the return of Christ. The scriptures mention it so often. And when people mock the second coming, it's a sign of the second coming. Bible says in 2 Peter, it says this, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of this coming? In other words, they say he's coming, but he hasn't come, and this is what you hear happening. You hear scoffers outside the church. You should never hear scoffers inside the church. God's people should love the appearing of Christ. Can I, maybe I could give you a little story that would help you remember this. I've loved this for many years. And that is uh, uh, borrowed from an old Southern Baptist evangelist whose name was Vance Havner. And Vance Havner preached all over the country. He's from the hills of North Carolina, but he went all over the country. He never drove a car and he never flew in an, or he may have flown an airplane, but he didn't commonly travel in an airplane. But he traveled by train all over the country. He said that one day, if you wanted to go to the train station and find out when the train was coming in, you wouldn't want to ask a passenger. They may not be sure. You'd want to ask the ticket master because he would have a schedule. He'd be able to tell you exactly when that train was going to arrive. But he said one day he was at the train station. He saw a young lady and he struck up a conversation with her and he realized that she was a bride who was waiting for the arrival of her groom. She didn't know exactly what time the train was coming, but her heart was beating with affection for her groom. And Vance Havner said believers may or may not have the scheme completely figured out about exactly when Jesus will come back. But we should have the heart of a bride waiting for her groom. God help us. This is, the, this is our goal here today. So let's look at the text, read it a few chunks at a time, and go through these first four seals or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first is the, the first seal is the white horse. Notice this, every time a seal is broken, it's broken or open by the slain lamb. And then a living creature, probably a mighty angel, speaks. And then the rider, the symbolic rider goes forth. In other words, things happen on the earth. God in his heaven, through his son, our savior, Jesus, the slain lamb, is opening, he's unfolding history. And those that are around the throne are announcing that 
and it's taking place on the earth to the limits that God says, not more than he says, not less than he says. You'll see that in the text today. Notice the first one. Now I watched, and when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, verse 3, when he opened the second seal, verse 5, when he, the Lamb, opened the third seal, verse 7, when he, the Lamb, opened the fourth seal, verse 9, it says it again, verse 12, it says it again. Remember this, it's the Lamb who is slain who opens the seals, and the things are going to happen announced by the living creatures. And the first horse rides forth. Verse one, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, can you imagine? I looked and behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Here's something fascinating. When you read this, you want to understand it. If you want to understand it, you want to compare scripture to scripture. If you compare this with the Olivet Discourse, it tracks directly through what Jesus said about what will happen in the end time is exactly what John is recording here. So the first thing he says is a horse comes out. Some say, oh, it's a white horse. It has to be Jesus. But Jesus is the one who's sending. And, and there are a couple of other reasons why this isn't the, uh, Jesus. This is the Antichrist. This is not Christ. This is a false Christ. And he doesn't bring peace. He brings a false peace. He has, he's symbolic peace. He's a white horse. He has a bow or the threat of war. He has a crown, that crown, not the royal crown, the diadem given to deity or to kings, but the, the victor's crown, the Stephanos crown that's given to the, the conqueror. So in Revelation 19, Jesus is going to be self-identified in Revelation 19, coming back to the earth, riding a white horse, wearing a diadem crown. But this rider on this white horse is not wearing the diadem crown. He's a false Christ, and he is putting forth a false beast. And if you go to Matthew 24 and verse 5, this is what it says. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. What do we learn from the rider on the white horse? Well, if nothing else, this we know. Until the end time, there will be false claims, false messiahs, false teaching, false doctrine and false teachers, false believers. And it's very common for us to say, well, in the interest of unity, we all want to get along and we don't want to subdivide over doctrine and such. Can't we all just get along? And there's a limit on that. And the limit is what the Bible says is true. So we need to understand and remember that false teaching is increasing toward the end. That tolerance toward error in, is increasing uh, toward the end. That doctrine is minimized or distorted toward the end. This is what we learn from the rider on the white horse. In chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, we have a second seal broken and a red horse rides forth. The lamb breaks the seal. The living creature announces the red horse. He comes out red, a symbol of war or conflict. He's granted notice to take peace from the earth. People kill one another, and there's a dagger of rebellion or a sword that is given to him. This is in verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. And out, of, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted, you notice, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would, could, should slay one another. And he was given this, this dagger sword, this sword of, of revolt. This is the rider on the red horse, Matthew 24. 
verses 6 and 7, in this parallel passage that Jesus was teaching on this same thing. The tribulation said, you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you aren't troubled. All these things must come to pass. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So in, in the end, the Bible says there will be a false peace that's brokered by a false Christ. And the world is hungry for that peace. But that peace will be broken by, by war, by bloodshed, and by revolt. This is consistently what the scriptures say. Look at, listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you aren't in darkness. You know better than this. He goes on to say, this again, three passages of Scripture that follow this similar pattern. A false peace declared by a false Christ, a false Messiah, and then all of a sudden, warfare. What do we learn from the rider on the red horse that no one will ever broker a lasting worldwide peace, but the one who will shoulder the government on his shoulders, the Prince of Peace, Jesus. What do we learn from the white horse? Watch out for wrong doctrine, false claims. What do we learn from the red horse? Only Jesus can bring peace. Now let's learn from the black horse, verses 5 and 6. When he opened a third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and behold, a black horse, its rider, had a pair of scales in his hand, a sign of scarcity. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for Daenerys, three quarts of barley for Daenerys. In other words, a little bit of food for a full day's labor, and do not harm the oil and wine. In other words, there's a limitation on this scarcity. Just like in every one of these, God or the Lamb is in control of how much death. God or the Lamb is in control of how much scarcity there is or how much famine there is. It's, it's controlled by the one in heaven. So, so you have in verses 5 and 6 this black horse, which is a symbol of famine. The scales are a symbol of scarcity. The, the, the phrase, do not harm the oil and wine, probably means this far and no farther God is in control. What do we learn from the black horse? We learn, among other things, we learn that God has appointed times and limits for everything. And only God has appointed times and limits. Only Jesus can limit evil. He's the one you want to look to when you're going through hardship. Let's learn from the pale horse, verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of a fourth living creature say, Come, and I look, and behold, a pale horse. This will be a power of death, of green. The rider's name is Death. Hades followed him. They're given authority. There it is again. They were given authority over a quarter of the earth, over a fourth of the earth, to kill this sword with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Imagine, people are going to die because of animals. So the name of this rider, this pale horse, the name of this rider is Death. He has the power to destroy a quarter of the earth. Today, that would be Almost 2 billion people, 1.8 billion people with sword, with hunger, with death, with beasts or disease that was traced to animals. Matthew 24 says this, verses 7 through 9, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. If you've been listening 
to people or even talking among one another, this plague that swept the entire earth might have made some of your friends say, or you to remember this passage in Revelation 6 and say, is what's happening in the world now this? Is this that? And this is not that because the other things that are surrounding it haven't happened, but the one who wrote this book certainly would know that this that's happening would remind us of that which is going to happen. Godly, wise people would recognize that the God of the Bible who says these judgments one day are going to be poured out upon the earth certainly has given us a warning. We, there was probably a time when you were a child and you heard a preacher preach on a plague sweeping the earth. You would think, well, that's never happened before because the plagues are all localized. There's a plague that has swept the entire earth that's affected the entire earth today. And this should make us think of, think, you know how people say, of biblical proportions. What do we learn from the pale horse or the horse of death? That only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That all other, end, all other, thing, other ways end in death. So here are the lessons of the four horsemen, though you may have others. The white horse teaches us we always will have to be alert to false teaching and improper tolerance of false teaching. The red horse teaches us that only Jesus can bring peace. The black horse teaches us that only Jesus can limit evil. And the pale horse teaches us, reminds us that only Jesus can give us life. They say the natives of the American West could hear horses coming from a distance by putting their ear to the ground. You know that if you, all, if you ever saw an old Western. Can you hear the approaching hoofbeats of the four horsemen of the Revelation coming? The election of the president of the United States has been getting all of our attention. How often do you think of the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? We are all tempted to put our hope in human leaders but God help us to put our hope in Jesus Christ who only can bring life, who only can bring peace, who only can end evil, who only can bring prosperity. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament mentions the subject of Christ's return. 216 chapters in the New Testament, 300 mentions of the return of Christ. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament mention the return of Christ. But the pulpits are often silent about the return of Christ while we talk about kind of therapeutic things, how to get along better with our wife, how to make more money, how to raise our kids, stuff that's important. But the Bible has a lot to say about Jesus Christ coming back in judgment. A lot to say. Who will hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? God help us. God knows events in our world would cause people to turn toward the Bible. God promises a special reward for all those of us. The Bible says a crown for those who love his appearing. And I want to be the kind of person that loves the appearing of Jesus. And I think it would be wonderful if our church, if Bethel was filled with people who say, I love this world. I love all the gifts that God has poured out upon me. And I enjoy them every day. And I want to be a steward of the earth. I want to do all those things that are right. But most of all, I'm looking for a time when Jesus Christ is coming back. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There's a place where the, where the worm will never die, where the fire isn't quenched, where people will suffer forever. Or Jesus, or, or, or the part that you like about the Bible isn't true. If the part you don't like about the Bible isn't true, the part you like about the Bible isn't true. We have to take it all together. Jesus affirmed all of that. He affirmed all. It doesn't mean that we're eager for God to pour out his wrath. 
But what I'm saying is this. When you read a passage like this, it should sober serious Christians. It should sober. This is not going to be good news for many people that we love. Think about your neighbor in this beautiful day yesterday, and you looked across the, and you saw your neighbor over there moving the leaves. Will that man, will that woman perish without God forever? Or will they live in the presence of God forever? Will Will your son be with you in heaven? Will your daughter be with you in heaven? Will you, do, aunts, do your aunts and uncles know about, did you tell them about Jesus? Do you really believe this book? Do we still have our missionary zeal to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus who would be lost without him? Do we really believe that anymore? You have to admit that our, our world is spiraling away from God in rebellion, and there needs to be a small group of people who still believe this book and who still obey this book This should sober us. It should stimulate obedience and faithfulness. This should comfort us when we look around us and see a world in rebellion against God. It will only be in rebellion against God as long as God allows it to be in rebellion. And perhaps you've been treated unjustly. And all of us have. Some some of you are currently going through a terrible time of unjust treatment. And I want you to know there is a God in heaven and he is just. And his and he will make everything right. He is able to reward. He's able to limit evil. He's able to reward faithfulness. And you want to continually trust him. And this should stir us to holy anticipation. Our daughter Hope is here with us today. And she's a married woman now. And she took her dog Hazard with her when she left. And we miss Hazard. There's things about him we don't miss. But there are things about him we do miss. One of the things I miss about him was how he behaved when Hope got home from work. <laughs> it's like he knew. It's, am I right, Lois? He'd stand up, and, and, and maybe your dog does this. He, he, he would get up and look out the window. He, had a, he somehow knew when, when Hope would be on her way down the road, he'd, he'd start looking out the window. And then when she'd get her Jeep over on that side of the house, he'd go, and if the door was open, he'd, he'd literally stretch up on his back legs because there's an opaque piece in the bottom of the screen door and so that his little eyes could see over the top of that. And he would strain to stay on his back feet and look out there until Hope got in. He was just a dog, but he loved his master. When was the last time you thought, Jesus, I'm so looking forward to you coming back. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to thank you. There's some things I want to talk to you about. There's some things I want to give you, Lord. You've been so good to me. I owe you everything. I'm so eager for you to come back. You're real. I know you and I love you. When was the last time you felt that way? Last week was a sweet week. I got to go up north and speak to a conference of camp directors. Can you imagine how much fun that was? But then it was also a sad week because then Lois's aunt Jean died. And she was from the mountains of eastern Kentucky, and I was privileged to do her funeral. And when I do that, I always try to think, what was this person characterized by? And she was such a giving person, such a generous person, such a kind person. She spent her life giving, and she loved it when when people would get together. And I arranged the funeral around the theme of something that she used to say, and I can hear her beautiful mountains in her voice when she would say, are you going to come to the family reunion this year? Are you going to come to the family reunion this year? 
I'm going to see you at the family reunion this year. Imagine if all that this book says about heaven is true, and it is, and God, Son, Jesus, our Savior, will be there with us forever, and we'll have eternal peace and kindness and love and bliss and no misunderstandings. How sad would it be if there are people that you love that weren't there? How sad would it be if your chair was empty? I'd like you to pray with me. Would you stand? And I'm going to dismiss you with a benediction. But with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment, I want to, want to ask you personally, are you sure you're right with God? Are you sure your sins are forgiven? I didn't ask, are you a good person? I know you're not a good person. God knows you're not a good person. Unless you know you're not a good person, you're far from God. But are you, are you going to go out into eternity, have to go to hell, pay for your own sins, or are you going to accept the gift that Jesus paid for your sins? Are you a Christian? Are you born again? God help you to yield your heart to God, to, to, to receive Christ, to believe in Christ, to be his child, to escape his wrath. Heavenly Father, thank you for these dear, precious believers, most of them I'm sure, that came today because they love you and they want to sing and they want to worship you, they want to praise you, they want to sit quietly and listen to your word being taught. Help us, I pray, God, please, Lord, uh, help us not to be so in love with this world, but Lord, to be in love with you and Lord, to work on earth in such a way that when, when, when the time comes for us to go and be with you, we'll be able to do that with, with great joy. I pray that this church would be a church that loves the second coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.